welcome all of the attendees who are here. There are quite a few of you. We are thrilled to have you. Um, welcome to the MIT Communications Forum. Um, so this is our first virtual event. Uh, we're really thrilled to be using this format to reach a broader audience. So sincerely thank every single person who's here for making that happen. Um, we have what is bound to be a really fascinating panel tonight. We were so excited um, that all of our speakers and, and moderator uh, were available. Um, so I will give everybody a little bit of info about how this event will work. Um, we're going to have roughly 45 minutes of moderated Q&A, followed by about 45 minutes of audience Q&A. Uh, I'll be reading that audience Q&A out loud to our speakers. So if you have a question, do not put it in the chat. Uh, drop it in the Q&A box below. Um, there are a lot more attendees than there are speakers. So we will try to get to as many questions as is humanly possible. Um, this event is being recorded. Uh, we plan to uh, add some closed captioning and we're going to post it on our MIT forum, uh, MIT Communications Forum website at comforum.mit.edu. Uh, if you would like to see more events just like this one, um, please sign up for our mailing list. Uh, that is also at comforum.mit.edu. I will put that link in the chat um, as soon as this intro is over. Um, I promise you, we will not spam you. We only send emails related to our events each year. We have about six, and so um, you won't be receiving too much too much email from us. Um, one last thing, uh, we would not be able to make events like this happen without um, generous support from sponsors. So a very special thank you to Radius at MIT. They've supported many of our events. They've been a phenomenal partner for making events like this happen. And a special thanks to the MIT Governance Lab. We're working with them for the first time, and we're thrilled uh, for their support. So without further ado, um, we have a spectacular lineup. Um, I'm excited to introduce our speakers and our moderator. Um, first up, we have Dr. Charday M. Davis. Uh, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Connecticut, and she's the creator of Hashtag Black in the Ivory. Uh, Dr. Davis's research examines the way Black women leverage communication in the sister circle to invoke collective identity, erect and fortify the boundaries around their home place, and backfill the necessary resources to return to white slash male dominated spaces in society. Dr. Davis also serves as the immediate past chair of the African American Communication and Culture Division of the National Communications Association. Association. Uh, welcome, Dr. Davis. Uh, Dr. James Mickens is the Gordon McKay Professor of Commu Computer Science at Harvard University. His research focuses on the performance, security, and robustness of large-scale distributed web services. Uh, prior to his work at Harvard, Dr. Mickens spent six years at Microsoft Research, where he worked in the Distributed Systems Group. He is currently on the Board of Directors at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Welcome, Dr. Mickens. Uh, Dr. Marina Robinson-Snowden is one of MIT's own. Uh, she is a senior engineer at the National Security Analysis Department at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. Prior to her current role, Dr. Snowden completed fellowships at the National Nuclear Security Administration and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace Nuclear Policy Program. She is the first Black woman to earn a PhD in nuclear engineering from MIT. Welcome, Dr. Snowden. And our moderator tonight is actually somebody uh, I was lucky enough to meet at a excuse me, communications forum event a few years ago. Uh, we were thrilled that she um, agreed to, to come back. 
Uh, her name is Tanya Baller-Brown. She is an editor at National Public Radio, where she's worked on stories about families of shooting victims in New Orleans, the aftermath of the Pulse nightclub shooting and sexual assault against people with disabilities. She was a 2019 Neiman Foundation for Journalism Fellow, where she studied the intersection of humor, satire, and journalism. Project she's edited at NPR and the Washington Post have been awarded Peabody, Murrow, and Gracie Awards, among others. Uh, thank you so much to all of our speakers. I'm going to pass it off to Tanya right now. Thanks everybody for uh, taking time out to come and join us for this conversation this evening. Um, so earlier this year, as people were protesting in the streets and demanding an end to racial injustice and calling for solutions to ending systemic racism, that energy spread beyond just policing and, and beyond um, the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, slate of um, policies, policy proposals, and into other areas such as my industry, media, but also into academia. And over the summer, the hashtag Black in the Ivory started trending and it gained traction as Black scholars, like uh, all of these wonderful, really accomplished people that we have here today, um, share their experiences confronting and contending with discrimination and alienation and other issues in colleges and universities. And so today we wanna to talk about some of um, what was shared in the, in the tweet um, thread and what continues to be shared as well as best practices, lessons learned and how to navigate some of these situations that others have um, been struggling with over the years. And so I wanna throw this first to Sarday. I'm gonna call people by first name, I'm Tanya too, I'm Tanya. Um, who was the main engine behind the hashtag. And just to give us a, a, a just a, talk to us a little bit about why this, you did this and what were some of the stories that were shared and what trends or um, uh, recurring themes did you see shared um, when you started this conversation and got this conversation going? Absolutely, hi everyone, good evening. Um, I'm really humbled to be in this space with so many brilliant minds and to be able to talk, and, to talk about this really pertinent topic. Um, one that we know has, has always been around, anti-Black racism in the academy. Um, we also know anti-Black racism is built into the bedrock of the United States. So naturally it is going to manifest itself in various social institutions. And I think that's not, I think, but that really is the kind of starting point to how um, I started to think about this because I was just reeling um, in over the summer, quarantining because of COVID um, and, um, you know, kind of sitting in what felt like isolation um, in, in a rental apartment in California and out protesting, um, just feeling like I was trying to do something, right? I was trying to somehow make sense of who I am as a black woman and how my, uh, uh, this kind of capital C conversation that was happening this summer, this racial reckoning, how that showed up in my own life. And because I thankfully, knock on wood, had not uh, had uh, um, personal run-ins with the police when it comes to mass incarceration, when it comes to police brutality, um, it doesn't mean that anti-black racism doesn't manifest in my life. And so I was just sitting there thinking about well, what does this mean to me? Me, right? And how does this show up within my own immediate sphere of influence and immediately just started thinking about the academy and my own experiences. Um, and 
just this interesting play on words, right? Seemingly so simple, right? Being black in the ivory and for me felt like a speck in a sea of white, um, which growing up in San Diego, going to predominantly white institutions all of my life uh, in terms of secondary education, um, it, that's just the recurring theme. And um, I, I just remember that Sunday when it was trending and I think it was the top 20 hashtag um, across the United States that Sunday. I mean, I was just floored that, you know, for me, it just started, I just was using that as a way to process what was happening around me. Um, and um, it's, it's crazy how it, it's crazy, but it's not how it resonated with so many other black academics, right? Um, and in reading the tweets, and I mean, I talk about all your plans being canceled that day because I was just reading, I just couldn't stop, right? I wanted to make sure I was reading every single tweet. And in terms of the stories that were, were surfacing, I don't know, I, I think about this phrase, I've used this recently, the death by a thousand paper cuts. So absolutely, that does not mean that many black academics around the globe um, uh, I've not experienced overt racism. Um, some women had talked about sexual assault, right? So thinking about intersectionality and how we cannot untether our racial identity from our gendered identity um, and other identities as well, sexuality and age. Um, but it was the microaggressions, um, the uh, unwanted touches to someone's hair, um, for spe specifically those who had were donning their natural kind of kinky curls and, and other natural hairstyles, um, being questioned about it, why, you know, if they're the janitor, you know what I mean, when they're in a lab. Uh, after hours, um, being asked for identification when they're trying to go into the lecture hall to teach um, by campus police, right? So, you know, these incidences where, again, you know, racial microaggressions, it does the psychological warfare where it, you're questioning, is it me? This seems racially motivated, but I can't, I can't tell, I can't quite put my finger on it. So it was, and I'll just say this and um, just to kind of wrap up my answer to your question, but what I found to be the most interesting, what or one of the most interesting pieces was in reading the tweets was how sometimes people were sharing the exact same story. And I mean, down to the minutia. And these are people who are went to grad school at different time, time periods, who are different generations in terms of like age groups, people who, men and women, uh, different fields, they're from programs across the United States and saying the exact same story. Well, thank you. That I think it, it's interesting that you had, you found that there, there was so much, not just overlap, but repetition in the stories that people were telling. And that segues a little bit into um, what I want to throw this question to uh, James, Dr. Nichols. Uh, because sociologist um, Sadali Maleku has described uh, the inclusion tax, right? She's talked about um, the time spent, the money spent, the emotions spent, the brain power spent trying to adhere to norms in um, academic spaces. And I'm curious, um, and you've talked about this a little yourself um, in various other areas, but I'm curious what ways you found to push back against some of that and um, your career. Thanks for the question. Uh, and I'm glad to be here, glad to see so many people on the call. I think that that question that you asked, I mean, it's, it's a hard one to answer because in a certain sense, 
it speaks to the fact that there is this additional burden that scholars of color oftentimes have to face in addition to the other things that scholars already do that make scholarship hard, you know, publish or perish, being on committees, you know, all this type of stuff. And so it's difficult. You know, I think that um, one reason why it's difficult is because it can be hard to tell someone, look, I know that you're busy, but I'm actually probably a little bit busier than you because of the various committees, for example, that I'm asked to be on that you might not be asked to be on. Not because you're a bad person, just because, you know, people are looking for the diversity unit, you know? And so I think that one of the things that um, I try to coach young academics on that I try to be um, very intentional about in my own career is being able to, 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 to be frank and to be polite, but to be open about the fact that there are certain things that I want to do because I want to increase, for example, diversity in the professoriate. There are certain things I'm asked to do that perhaps I don't necessarily want to do, but I feel like I should do as a service. But then that means that there are some things I simply won't have time to do. And I think that it's, it's sort of like more of an art than a science when you need to convey these messages, when you need to tell someone who might be, for example, your chair or your dean or someone like this, your direct manager if you're in industry, that I would love to do this, but, you know, ellipses, I'm doing these other things. And so one thing that I found very helpful is that, first of all, when you're having one of these conversations, you need to figure out, am I dealing with someone who's reasonable or not? I mean, just to put it bluntly, is this a person who you can actually negotiate with, who you can sort of trust to sort of be sympathetic with you, even if they don't immediately understand what your current burdens are? Because if the answer is no, if it's not a reasonable person, that's like a whole nother sort of you know, path and decision tree, as engineers might say. But if it's someone who is reasonable, then oftentimes I find it very effective and actually very educational for, for both people to say, here's what my current slate of things looks like. I'm on this many committees. I'm, you know, mentoring this many students. You know, this is my teaching load. This is what I'm doing with respect to research. So here's what I think my priorities are. What do you think my priorities should be? And you know, if you phrase that in sort of a polite way, but, but in sort of an honest way, in a direct way, I think that can actually sort of recalibrate how people think sometimes about what the burden of a scholar of color is. Because I think there's a large set of people in academia who are well-intentioned, but ignorant. And just to be clear, that includes me, that includes everyone. You know, we're all sort of ignorant about something. But I think there's a large set of people in academia who they're not in the Klan, they're not, you know, quote unquote, obvious racist. They're not burning crosses in people's front yard. And yet, you know, they're actually, without knowing it, um, com complicit is too strong of a word, but, but they don't understand that, you know, we're all embedded in sort of this larger social structure. And we all play a certain role in making sure that certain um, things that have inertia either continue or don't continue. So I've actually found it very useful to say, this is what my next year looks like. So, you know, you're asking me to do this. Do you think that, you know, how do you think this fits into my overall plan? Do you think I should maybe drop something else? And, you know, sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, I think you should actually, you know, do this instead of that. And that's good feedback for you to hear perhaps as well. But I think that one of the, the big challenges I see for, for scholars of color is that they try to say yes to everything in part because of a fear of being sort of stereotyped as sort of the, the angry person of color. Or, you know, this is someone, you know, well, when I asked Steve to do this, Steve didn't complain about this, you know? So I think there is a fine line there, but I think that um, in general, in life, it's very helpful to be intentional about the things that you do. You know, when you wanna get some professional or personal goal, think explicitly about what steps you're gonna take to get there. And I think that this sort of advice to be intentional is doubly important in academia, in part because 
there are so many people who can ask you what to do, right? And try to suggest that you do certain things. You know, I used to spend some time in industry and that's one of the biggest differences I found between industry and academia. In industry, I nominally have one boss. You know, in academia, anyone can send me an email. You know, students can send me an email, people, other professors can send me an email. So it's really important to be intentional about how you choose what you do. I want to throw that same question to uh, Dr. Snowden, Marina, um, in terms of how you have um, learned to manage some of those expectations, some of that uh, additional work, that laborious work um, that maybe uh, someone not of color is not having to take on. Uh, yeah, you know, it's really, I think that James and Sade really just hit the nail on the head with, with so many pieces of their, of their answer, right? So, so, you know, James was talking about this honesty and transparency, right? And, and owning um, the fact that your time, you know, time is the most limited resource, right? And oftentimes we struggle with saying no, right? That is what James is saying. You need to be able to say no. To be intentional is to have to prioritize, right? And one of the hardest things I think um, scholars and practitioners of color um, have to deal with is prioritizing ourselves because the environment seems so unstable for us, right? Because you are often the only one in the room. So every decision that you make feels so consequential, even in reality, it may or may not Right. So we have to recognize as well and acknowledge that there is perception and then there's also reality on both sides of the equation. Right. Um, but I think this 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 skill and ability, which is something that is built right to be able to prioritize yourself and your career and say no um, is key. Right. Now, it's interesting because for me, you know, I was steeped and raised in the tradition of um, historically black colleges and universities, right? Um, and so much of that, I'm a, grad, a proud graduate of Florida A&M University. So before I had anything to do with MIT, I was a rattler, okay? And the rattler perspective, um, yes, come on now, come on now, okay? <laughs> but that, that HBCU perspective is about to a degree, selflessness, right? It's about putting yourself um, in a position to help your culture, right? So there is a balance that has to be struck between being so laser focused on your own success and because it is a testament and a data point for your culture about what can happen. And then kind of what I feel as a duty um, to the culture to, to contribute to this work. Right. So the committee work that James and Charday talked about. Right. Like there for me, it's it's not I never feel comfortable because of that sense of duty saying no to everything. Right. Like you have to make space for that. And I think that's, you know, I think James and Charday would agree. Um, you know, Charday talked about this this question of um, is it me? Right. Like they asked, they stopping me. Like, am, am I tripping? Like, did I take that the wrong way? When the guy, I was at a holiday party in graduate school and one of the uh, uh, other graduate students walked up to me and just in a very well-intentioned way, right, James walked up to me and said, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I, I know I used to live near the inner city and I'm so proud that you were able to make it out of the inner city, right? And I'm sitting at the holiday party with my little cup of food or a plate of food thinking, now how do I respond to this? Now, what do I say to that, 
right? Because there's so many assumptions built into that, right? Because I am uh, a black person in this room, I must have either been the affirmative action hire or admit, right? Or I've traversed, you know, crack needles and, and all kinds of things to get here, right? And there are people who live, you know, our, our community is so diverse, right? We have so many different stories from cultural, right? Like we have Jamaicans, we have Haitians, we have people from the African continent, we have people from Canada, like black people are very um, diverse and broad, right? And, 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 and to have to come up against um, the assumptions can be challenging. For me, um, it was it was critical while I was at MIT and now that I'm at Johns Hopkins to find community, right? Because community is the antidote to gaslighting. So when you have a community of folks that you can go back to and say, so this thing happened to me, am I tripping? They can say, no, you're not tripping, right? And, and, and Sade's hashtag was that in the digital space, right? She created community in the digital space so people could acknowledge and cooperate and endorse, right, your experience and say, no, you are not crazy. Um, this does happen and this is wrong and it exists to James point in this kind of systematic context that matters, right? So, you know, it, James is exactly right. It is a hard question, but I think, you know, community um, is essential and learning how to be transparent, not, not necessarily vulnerable, okay, but how to be honest with your abilities at that moment and your priorities at that moment is key to kind of staying along the path. When you say community, are you like, are you, are you telling people to seek out um, people like yourself, instructors who can sort of guide them to other people or, or, or are there um, resources that should be, you think your university should be um, compiling and making available? Mm -hmm. um, like what kind, what do you, what kinds of ways do people create these communities or? Yeah, so the easy answer is all of the above, right? Um, what, what I was thinking about was for me, the, the most transformative and kind of fortifying force while I was at MIT and, and now were my peers, right? Were my homegirls and my homeboys who I could, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about the mask, right? and you could drop the mask and just be yourself and speak in your language and you know admit things that you would never admit in the mainstream conversation because of that fear of vulnerability and that that stereotype threat right that that you feel like if you admit this it's a damnation on your culture so i think it's it's peer community but you bring up a very key point um, the best that one of the best pieces of advice that I got when I was coming up at MIT was you have to get people to buy into your success. So there are people in power in these institutions, right? Whether they're in the provost office, whether they're in the dean's office, right? And they need to know that you exist and you ain't playing, right? Like you serious business, you good at your job. So when the inevitable foolishness starts, because it always gonna be some foolishness, you already have the reputation that no, 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 it's, it's not her or it's not him. Something else is up here because I know this 
person is a serious scholar and the quality of their work and the type of their character right so they can start to question their own system like something's wrong here if she's if she's having trouble and she's a stellar student or scholar or professor we must be dropping the ball somewhere right so it's communities at all levels tanya this brings me back to Sharday then because earlier this year in, a, in an interview you talked about um how uh white academics have not given weight or attention to systemic racism and so my question sort of also it, it builds on what um, uh, marina was just saying is with you know white faculty and staff making up like 70 percent of campuses nationwide like what do you see is their role in helping to dismantle systemic racism do you that's a hard question this is for Chardet, though. <laughs> right that is <laughs> Ooh, their role, yes. <laughs> there may, you know, what would you have them do? What, what, what? They have a lot to do. They have a lot to do. Can I also just say Marina's uh, preaching, okay? <laughs> um, she didn't take this to uh, like a webinar, to uh, a forum, to some kitchen table talk. I'm here for everything that she, that she said. And if I can and, uh, lean into my research in terms of um, the communities, um, and peers and, and the necessity of having for black women, for example, a sister circle, right? Thinking about the identities that you hold, right? And, and where you sit in your vantage point and finding other individuals who are situated similarly to you. And that can also mean other, for example, other black academics and creating a community. They don't even necessarily have to be black academics at your institution, but even other black academics nationwide, right? Because they understand what it means to be one of the only, right? In, in that space. But also thinking about sometimes you just need to lean on your sister girls, right? And, and even though they might not necessarily be academics or a part of, or affiliated with the university, there is a shared understanding about our double jeopardy, right? Being both black and woman. Um, and ways in which they might be confronting gendered racism within their own sphere of influence, within their own job that might overlap or read similarly to what we experience. So yes, I just, I just had to just kind of co-sign with, with what she was, what she was preaching on. Um, white, white folks, white academics, what, what is it that they can do? There's a, a lot that they can do. Um, one, um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I really think uh, some of them need to, to have an introspective moment um, about, uh, about the, their own, the seeds that have been planted by their parents, by other socializing agents, by their grandparents, right? I mean, many of us are only one to two generations away from, you know, uh, 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 white communities, uh, other communities of color who've been spewing anti-Black rhetoric and, and have been very unabashed in doing so, right? So um, it's to, to think that, you know, someone's aunt, someone's grandparents or great-grandparents who were a part of, uh, of those communities who were a part of perpetuating uh, uh, that rhetoric, to think that they have no influence on you, right, is that's foolish. So I think individuals need to have an introspective moment about what has been planted inside of them, what beliefs, albeit some may be deep-seated, right, that are, that are, uh, that are uh, situated perhaps even in their subconscious and really interrogating that. Um, many people are, you know, we, we talk about therapy. This is also another 
uh, topic that we should be, white folks especially, should be talking about in therapy, right? Um, how they might be complicit or how they might be, again, perpetuating this in just their everyday walks of life. I also think white folks need to think about not only what their work life looks like, but oftentimes what you do at work is a reflection of your own personal life. How many, uh, look at your own friendship network. Do you only hang around white folks? Uh, do you look, think about the books that you read? Is it mainly white authors? Think about the restaurants that you patron. Are they mainly owned by white people? Is it only serving kind of standard American food? Uh, think about the, 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 um, your leisurely activities, your gym or other classes that you take, um, uh, uh, fitness classes that you take, thinking about different kinds of seminars or workshops in your community that you attend. Who else is in the room? Who's teaching it? What are they talking about? That's a reflection of you and your beliefs, your desires, your ideas, right? Again, sometimes it's subconscious. We're subconsciously making these decisions, but what we believe is going to guide how we behave. So uh, I, I think that, you know, there needs to, to be, again, an introspective moment about where someone is situated personally in their own personal life. Um, and um, I don't want to say before, but that definitely needs to be working in tandem with the work that they're doing at the university. Um, I also think that white academics absolutely um, need to, well, I don't want to say stop, but to stop offloading this work onto black academics and even onto other people of color, we all have a role. That could mean um, making a, a concerted effort to, um, to mentor and advise uh, other black graduate students. That is not just the responsibility of black faculty to advise and or mentor black graduate students and black undergraduate students. Absolutely not. They have a role in that as well. That could mean sacrificing their privilege, decentering their privilege and sacrificing, I shouldn't say sacrificing, but sacrificing their, um, their, I guess, comfort, right? But I mean, white folks benefit from privilege and that then allows them to move up and matriculate the ladder to maneuver the university in a way that's much easier than their black counterparts. So there's a way in which they need to sacrifice that. There's a way in which they need to sacrifice that comfort to create room so that we can start to maneuver so that some of our needs and desires can now be centered. Um, there's a way in which they need to, if they find themselves in, um, uh, I was talking about this with um, with some faculty of color who I do work with at UConn um, and how there are some open positions uh, for in uh, the administrative uh, kind of realm or tier of our university. Um, if white folks find themselves getting tapped on the shoulder, perhaps they need to think about some of their black peers or their black colleagues who are also uh, more than qualified even to be in that position and perhaps not go and to take that and to go and to suggest someone else's name, put someone else's name in the ring, right? Um, there are even just small micro behaviors that folks can do. I, I learned um, uh, this theory called shine theory, which is when in meetings, for example, if you hear me saying uh, uh, an idea and um, to go and to repeat that idea, because nine times out of 10, no one's going to either hear it or they're not gonna give me the acknowledgement. They're gonna maybe like the idea, but not go and attach it to myself. And they're gonna go and then take the, basically co-op the idea, right? So with Shine Theory, it's saying that with people in positions of power to repeat it and to cite it. So that not only the idea gets goes forth, but also the individual who owns it, right? They then are, are tethered to, um, to it. So um, even something as simple as making sure that we're not getting erased um, and that we are getting our proper due. Gosh, I mean, the, there's just 
I could go on and on. I'm sure we all could kind of collate all these uh, various things that they could do in the personal life and the professional life, right? Well, and I would say you got to do the research. Say it again. I want to give James and uh, and Marina a chance to to share some ideas about what they what changes they think that um, white faculty members uh, and other academics might be able to do to help um, dismantle some of the systemic racism. Well, I think uh, as always, you know, your track record of asking difficult questions continues. I appreciate that you're keeping us on our feet. Uh, what I think is sort of underlying. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We wanted the best. We got the best. I think that uh, one of the things which is sort of underlying your question, which I think is interesting, and I'll just put it out there bluntly. I think one of the big challenges in academia is what do we do with the case of the white progressive who voted for Obama? Right. There's like a great scene in Get Out that sort of addresses this very thing. You know, like you'll find these people in academia who, you know, that they, they, they want to believe they vote the right way. You know, like, oh yeah, I voted for Obama. I totally believe in policies X, Y, and Z. But sort of get into something that Chardet was saying. It's like, but are you living a life, you know, both sort of academically and sort of personally that reflect how you think that your voting preferences is sort of, uh, you know, making claims on, on, on the world, you know? So for example, like, and this is something that's been mentioned by some of the other panelists, not just women and people of color can be on diversity committees. It's possible that you know, white men can be on those committees. When you're looking at you know, how are we gonna manage um, you know, uh, a daycare for, uh, for professors who have children? Doesn't just have to be women on that committee. When we're looking at, you know, to Marina's point, we're looking at oh, how can we increase the diversity of our graduate student admins? It doesn't just have to be people who have the demographic characteristics that you want to improve being on that committee. And so I think that it's important. And once again, this is another one of those difficult conversations that you, you, you have to sort of midwife with some grace and with some, uh, some charm. But I think it's important to ask people to basically step up to these things, to say, you know, can you act as an ally? Because I think in many cases, that's really what's lacking in, in academia. Not just people who say like, yes, I believe in X, Y, and Z, but it's like, will you actually perform explicit acts of allyship? You know, if you see, for example, that, you know, a lot of committee work is being um, pushed towards people of color, will you be an ally and suggest, maybe I'll do some of that work or I'll suggest someone else who is underburdened who should maybe get some of that work? You know, and there are very simple, very practical things that I think that, um, you know, allies can do. So for example, when you're thinking about colloquium speakers, who should we invite to come talk to our students as exemplars of what academia should look like? You know, a very simple question that you can ask in a meeting is, have we considered people of color here? Is there anyone that we're missing? Are there any women that we're missing here? You know, is there anyone with a disability? Things like this. And what's interesting is that when you ask that question, just asking the question, a lot of times people will say, oh, right, right. I, why don't we invite so-and-so? And so it was just that sort of gentle prodding that was necessary, but someone has to do it. You know, someone has to do it and you have to sort of set this culture of people being willing to ask those questions. And, you know, I, I also wanna really sort of emphasize something that Marina said, which has already been emphasized by Chardet, but particularly if we have a lot of engineers in the audience, even in engineering, it is a social science. There are plenty of people who are super smart, super bright, who didn't build the right network, and you don't hear about those folks. And so I think it's very important, you know, to build that community. And it can't just be, you know, people of color. 
And the answer, and you know, why is that? Because there's not a lot of us out there right now. And so, you know, if you were just going to hitch your wagon to just a colored star, your wagon might not be going very far at a lot of universities, you know? So I think that if you do have allies, you know, uh, uh, who are white, you should, you should allow them to help you because these people do exist out there, you know? But I do want to reemphasize that point, once again, that community is so important because, you know, when you think about, you know, who gets academic jobs, academia is very small, you know? And as I always tell my students, there's sort of like the long line and the short line, just like get into a club, you know? You always want to be in that short line, right? And so how do you get on that short line? You get on the short line by knowing people and by your allies knowing people. And so you want to be very intentional, regardless of what stage of your career you're at. You can be a grad student, you can be a professor, you can be emeritus, doesn't matter. You can be retired, right? There's still things in your life that you want. And you want to be intentional about building the community that will allow you to achieve those goals. Um, I'll toss this one to Marina, but what, because you, you talked about this a little bit about the culture that um, BIPOC students um, encounter when they're um, coming to universities and they're not necessarily ready for the campus culture um, and just sort of navigating some of these things. What responsibility do institutions have to try to help students not just get to the school, but get through the school and all of these things that you're talking about? And what are some of the things that they might be thinking about uh, instituting to help better help students matriculate and graduate and be successful because our numbers um, show that we some of we can get there sometimes but we don't always get finished. <laughs> we don't no, cross the thing. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think to your question, what what proportion of the responsibility, I say the vast majority of the responsibility falls on the institution, right? And the first thing the institution needs to do is know thyself, right? Like one of the biggest errors I see consistently, even now in the 30 years of diversity and equity and inclusion being mainstream, right? Like this is not a new conversation we have in. And that's why this is so frustrating, right? Because this work, you know, was instigated in like really hardcore in the 90s. And it was the same situation, right? And the problem is that institutions, you know, it's very easy. I see that there's a lot of different kind of, um, facets to DEI work, right? And, you know, one of the trends I see is that uh, institutions of higher education, um, industry, military, regardless, government, everyone is very comfortable with the recruitment conversation, right? How do we get these shining stars into our institution? Then once they get through the door, it's gonna be kumbaya because it's okay, right? Unfortunately, as you said, Tanya, the data does not bear that out, right? Students are getting here with all of the vigor and enthusiasm and promise. And for whatever reason, they're leaving with a master's when they apply for a PhD. They're leaving before the tenure track happens or they're not getting tenure at all, right? Um, and what I find as the consistent error is that institutions are not tracking this. And if they are tracking it, they're not tracking it in an actionable way. They're not setting any strategies around these numbers, right? I think the most guarded data in uh, higher ed institutions is your demographic data. And it's guarded because people are embarrassed because the numbers are not moving in the right direction and they don't wanna be shamed, right? But we have to move out of this frame of uh, embarrassment and shame and just acknowledge 
as a collective community under the context of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and the transatlantic slave trade, right? Like nobody is doing this right. So you're not uniquely failing in this. We need to get beyond the shame so that we can share Right, and we can we can strategize together about how to correct these um, trends specifically with respect to cultural and ethnic diversity. Right, because another thing that um, institutions of higher education are very comfortable with is defining diversity in terms of gender. Right, we are very quick to talk about how we have achieved at, at our beloved MIT, achieved gender parity in the undergraduate ranks, right? We are near 50-50, the, the, the proportion of women in STEM is rising year after year. But ask those same people how many black folk they have in their programs and what the 10 year trends look like. They're stagnant if not reducing, right? So we have to hold ourselves accountable to the way that we're defining these terms, right? You're defining them in a way that suits you, in a way that you're proud to talk about that data. But if you're not willing to know thyself and look at yourself, then we are, we, we lost before we even started, you know? Um, I think, I, you know, I just, James, you are the MVP talking about this white progressive, my brother, okay? Because I read something recently that said it really ties in so well with you. It was a Harvard Business Review article or something. And they were talking about a, kind of a, 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 the other side or the, the other side of the negative diversity corner where you have folks that say, listen, we have Asian American, we have Latino, we have a, a transgender person, a lesbian person, a gay person, we have um, a, you know, a, a, a differently abled person. Like, aren't we diverse enough? Like, we did it, we're here. But, but the question is, where, where are the, where's the black person? Like, you ain't done until you have black people. And the reason why you're not done until you have black people there is because you have to frame it in terms of impact, right? Diversity and inclusion work is about who is the most marginalized, who is impact. It's not about your intention. I understand what you meant to say, right? But that's not what's important here. It's about how your actions land on communities, right? And the most affected still to this day, could you COVID is, is bearing it out day after day, right? It's the black community. From the founding of this country, we have been at the bottom of the totem pole, okay? It's the way it was set up. So until you have that group well represented within your organization, you ain't done. You can have as many as you want in terms of your diversity checkboxes. But then, you know, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a very nuanced conversation, but we have to bring these conversations in in an institutional way, right? And it can't just be because another black man got murdered on camera that now we're having the forum, right? Where is your diversity officer? Department head, provost, right? MIT just released the fact that they want every department now to have a dedicated diversity officer. That's, you, you late. This should have been happening. We were talking about this when I was there and I've been gone five years now, right? So we need to invest in these positions so that it's not only on the students and faculty of color to be the engines of this work, right? You need to institutionalize this with positions. When your Dean of Diversity and Inclusion leaves, fill that position, right? Because if it doesn't get filled, we see where your priorities are. And I'm looking at you, <laughs> my institution, fill the position, 
so that we can see this work continue to go year after year. But you know, you ask what should faculty and the institutions do? These are those things, know your data, institutionalize these roles so somebody can own this progress, have a strategic plan. The same way you have a strategic plan around building your endowment, and you've been able to build billion dollar endowments, right? Because you have networks and connections and you set goals and you track those goals based on year after year data. Do the same thing with diversity. Do the same thing with communities of color. And then we will start to see the returns on the investment. Because right now we've done 30 years of investment and have nothing to show for it with respect to black people. Thank you. Um, do y'all think that like Title IX reporting and training are mandatory because this again you, you just said this but I'm going to ask anyway um, is mandatory at most campuses so do you see that the, the need for the same kind of codification for diversity equity and inclusion training and um, is that how we get to someone responsible for the numbers some you know away from the shame that you talked about and, and more accountability and more action Charday, I'll throw it to Charday. <laughs> or Jane. Or <laughs> um, I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it hurts. Put it that way. Um, I don't think it hurts to, as Marina said, to have an in, um, to have dedicated. I see that as dedicated institutional resources, right? Um, to addressing racism uh, as it. Um, as it exists uh, across the, the university. Certainly there needs to be some system in place, right? Where individuals who encounter these issues and who are assaulted uh, can go to the university and there is a process, right? By which it will get um, uh, addressed and evaluated and handled accordingly in a way where the person uh, feels as though the university has responded as they should. Um, yeah, so that could be an officer. I've yet to see something like that. Um, I don't know if this exists at other universities, but I'm certainly open to the possibilities of imagining that. Okay, push forward at your uh, uh, institutions. I think we're gonna shift over to taking questions from the audience now. And um, Christina gave some directions, but I'll, let, I'll be quiet and let her tell you again, just in case anybody missed how to submit questions. Right. Uh, we've got some great questions already. If you have additional questions, put them in the Q&A box below. We're going to try and get through as many as possible. Uh, I'll just read them out and we'll pass them on to speakers and, and kind of go from there. Uh, the first question I want to start out with is um, non-Black POC exist in a space between whiteness and Blackness, and often it can be difficult to understand your role in helping dismantle anti-Black racism in the academy. Do you think there's any distinct or particular role that non-Black POC should play in the struggle for justice in academia? Does anybody want to jump in? <laughs> Thought. I'll just throw the thought out there real quick. So I think, you know, it's a wonderful question. And to me, it brings up the idea of coalition building, right? So James talked about the fact that, unfortunately, the situation right now is, is that there is so few of us, right? And year to year to year, the numbers even fluctuate in that small number, right? So you might have one or two or six, and then you're really celebrating, right? So in order for us to make an impact, there has to be coalitions forming between all of the cultural 
and racial groups in terms of the minority category, right? Like the Asian Pacific Islanders need to link up with the black folks, need to link up with the BGSA, need to link up with the Hispanic professional engineers, right? Like, because that's the only way that we can have that kind of, that, that kind of um, power in terms of numbers to lobby and is wonderful about the situation in terms of the coalition building is a lot of our needs are similar, right? A lot of the things that we're going through in terms of what we're facing with respect to the systems within academia, maybe our origin stories are a little bit different, right? But the, the systems that we're coming up against in academia oftentimes treat us very similar, right? And now it's now there are nuances, right? When we talk about particularly um, with respect to in engineering, the um, presence of Asian Americans versus other minority groups, like there are nuances, I get that. But the idea of getting together and amplifying each other's needs, amplifying each other's demands, right? And, and to uh, point about uh, shine theory, right? Like shine each other, right? Like if Hispanic student group or the Hispanic faculty group is something like all the minority clubs and, and, and affinity groups need to link up behind because that sends a demand signal to leadership, right? Because also another thing we have to acknowledge in this space right now is we have power, okay? They don't want to lose us. They ain't got but three of us, okay? So if we all band together, right? And make our demands very, very clear, you know, that sends a signal to them to listen, you better listen before all before your diversity walk out the door and go to the next university because we are in demand. And it's it's not something that we have to shy away from. It's nothing that we created. Okay, but we can leverage that power that we have right now until the system has changed to try to push the system forward. Yes. And if I can just say that we kind of are holding, I guess, intention in a way, but um, this kind of POC coalition building, right? And, and the solidarity that, that gets invoked and, and rightly should be with moments that are focused on particular communities, right? And this is a black moment. So I, I think for, for me, uh, need our non-black POCs to recognize that, to not try, and, and for administrators not to try to do the broad paint stroke of, we're going to, to dedicate these dollars for all diverse groups or all kind of groups of color. No, I need dedicated dollars for black people, black staff, black undergraduate students, graduate students and faculty. I need folks to be bold and to lean into that. And for our non-black -PO, non POCs to, um, to uh, support us in that endeavor. Uh, yeah, it, it, we really need to lean into the nuance, right? And that we have specific needs as black folks um, that are, uh, that need to be focused on. Because when we go and try to invoke that kind of all POC uh, or, or uh, 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 issues, right? Black people, we end up losing. And we end up going invisible and unheard. Yeah, I would also say that the allyship issue is important too, because, you know, although I think there should be sort of like top-down requirements for institutions to think about these issues of race and Blackness in particular, a lot of times those mandates can seem very artificial and therefore easy for people to ignore if it's not seen as being something that is also important organically for the community, right? So it's like, you know, think about like ethics training if you're a scientist. Most scientists, I mean, they're like, yeah, okay, so don't push people down the stairs, try not to blow up the lab, like, cool, I'm done, right? In part because it feels pro forma. It feels like I just have to check this box and then be done with it, you know? So I think that this is one reason why allyship with um, non-black uh, POCs is so important because it, it builds the size of the coalition. 
And it will make the people in power see that it is actually something the community is experiencing and feels is important, as opposed to there was this edict that got passed by you know, the president or the provost, and I just need to check that box so I can keep my job. Instead, it's like the people who are ostensibly my constituents, whose you know, care is, has been entrusted to me, they actually feel this is an important topic. Um. Many, uh, here's the next question. Uh, many different diversity, equity, and inclusion committees have sprung up recently. Students who are black, indigenous, or people of color disproportionately get asked to be on these committees. The problem is that we are typically the most active and likely to be able to make change. It is a burden to speak up and more of a burden to expect to make the fixes we are pointing out. How do we navigate this issue? I'd say, I mean, once again, another hard question. There's raining, falling down from the sky. So I think that um, this is one reason why it's actually important to try to be frank and have honest conversations with the people who are tasking you to do these things. So, you know, sometimes when I get invited to do things like be on a diversity committee, for example, I will sometimes say, and I, you know, I'm tenured now, so I'm not worried about getting fired, but I will sometimes say something like, so can you tell me how many other people will be on this committee? How many of them will be white? How many of them will be men? How many will be women? Because it's important for me to not be on a committee that's, you know, let's say it's about, you know, let's say black inclusion, that it's only black people. Because yes, you clearly want people at that table when you have that conversation to bring their lived experiences, but it can't just be the burden of, you know, sort of like the, the, the disenfranchised to sort of enfranchise themselves, right? This is a system. And so it takes voices from all across the spectrum. And so I think that can be uh, challenging when you're a student, when you might not feel that you have as much protection there. But if you have allies, for example, either in numbers amongst other students, or if you have other faculty members who you feel comfortable sharing these ideas with, um, it's, it's helpful when you have someone who can be external to the direct situation to come in there and vouch for you and to say, look, there's something here that's not quite right. You know, we're already not providing enough support for our students of color. And now we're also asking them to do these extra things in addition to pass their quals and write papers and do lab work and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's just really important to get to a place where you can have those frank conversations about those things. Something I did recently, um, my department started a DEI task force by my very good friend and colleague. Um, and I, it was our idea, but I told her pretty frankly, speaking to uh, what, what James had said of, uh, I'm not going to be chair, I have no interest being chair of this committee, and I will be on it. Um, but more so as a way as a kind of a check and balance, because I fear a whole bunch of white folks on a DEI committee, it can go real wrong real fast. Um, but I, I essentially kind of worked it out with her in terms of a strategy where she knew like, Please do not call on me to do everything. I'm probably not going to be on a, on a whole bunch of subcommittees. I have enough to do. This is the role that I, I want to play. Um, and in a way, also, I also made it clear, which is it's kind of harkening to what I was talking about, shine theory and the ideas that we had and how they can get stolen and co-opted, that when she comes to me, which sometimes she does about certain things that she wants to do with the committee and she wants a sounding board, that she makes sure she gives me credit in the meeting um, because i also find that when we're sitting on these committees people do a lot of the picking up your brain and right and and wanting to go and to 
kind of consult with you and then end up taking your ideas and not giving you any due for what for what it is that you're, you're right you're contributing to the group so i think again the honesty and transparency and also kind of strategy and if that is not necessarily with the entire group then making sure that you're having that uh, conversation with the the chair or the whomever it is that's leading it and if i could just give a quick two finger on that you know in addition to everything that James and Sharda just said, also as your whatever level you're at, the person who asked this question, be compassionate with yourself as you build that muscle of prioritization and advocate advocacy for yourself, right? Um, because we talked about that tax earlier, and oftentimes um, when you have so many demands on your time and things coming in, um, there can start to become like almost a spectator conversation going on in your head about how you should have done this different or should have done that different. Like you have to forgive yourself if you say yes to one too many things, right? And then use that data to course correct later, right? But, you know, so much of our culture right now is expecting people to arrive at 100%, like arrive knowing exactly what to do and exactly how to handle situations. And it's just not the reality of the situation. And you have more interactions with these situations, you get better and better at saying no, or I would rather do this or that, or to Sade's point, strategizing with people and telling them exactly what you need in that moment, right? So, you know, I, I wish I would have known that earlier in my career and I would have saved a lot of mental um, kind of critique of myself, understanding that it's a process. Um, the next question is, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I resonated so much with everything said as a black engineering PhD student. I'm on one of the many DEI committees at my university and I'm tired of the lack of self-awareness, especially when it comes to understanding the problems BIPOC students face in academia and the simultaneous lack of willingness to spend money for DEI assessments and solutions. How do we demand the resources required to make real institutional change? I'm tired and my patience is waning. So I have a thought and I'm not sure if it's a good thought. Okay, but I'm gonna throw it out there. Okay. <laughs> I remember being a graduate student and just feeling the exact same feelings, right? That so because this was before George Floyd, right? It was I was in graduate school, Trayvon Martin, right? Mike Brown what was was happening. And it was the same uproar, a little um less white people on the protest line, but nonetheless, the same enthusiasm. And one of the things that kept coming up for me was um, that exact question, right? Like, how do I, how do we not let this just be lip service? And I think Sade is a wonderful example of this, about how being a little more public with your frustration or with your experience, right? And there's a way to do this, right? And, 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 and we have to acknowledge the risk um, with being more public, right? Writing an article about your experience, sending a tweet about your experience. Like there is a lot of risk to that. So I'm not um, minimizing or dismissing that, but I think there is a role for introducing the conversation um, in a way that is a little bit further than the walls of your institution. And maybe the way to approach it, um, if you are in a, in, a, in a more risky situation, which you, let's say you're, pre, you're a graduate student and you're trying to get your PhD, you don't have that yet, right? Um, is to always try to frame it in the most collaborative terms possible. 
right? You're trying to bring the institution along as opposed to convicting them, which the frustration makes you feel like you want to do, right? Um, you want to have a kind of how might we conversation? How might we bring about this? How might we, right? It's a we thing, but in a way that brings in stakeholders from beyond your institution in a little bit more public facing way. And I wonder because, you know, at the end of the day, what we have to acknowledge for good or for bad are these institutions are brands, right? They're brands. And the biggest threat to their brand is you going public. Is you say is you starting black in the ivory? You know what I'm saying? Like, and and you best believe uh Chardet's university took notice. You know, took notice, want, probably wanted to, Charde, you should speak on this, probably wanted to talk to you, wanted to get your ideas and your thoughts, right? So there's there's a way to um, balance and to strategize um, that risk versus that reward of shining a little bit more of a light on the specific experience that you might be having um, in your university. Ooh, yes, risk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and that's a that's an internal conversation you have to have with yourself about if if you can do it. You know, um, there is something about yeah, invoking um, uh, or or kind of uh, I guess community. You're building a coalition nationwide or even global wide with brown, with other perhaps black graduate students who likely are experiencing very similar things, um, or even black graduate students at your university. Something that comes to mind at UConn is they started um, this uh, Instagram, I think, page uh, called Black at UConn and it's anonymous. So, but students can go and post to the page about whatever it is they're experiencing Black at UConn and everyone can see the responses, but it's not attached to an identity. And let me tell you that has shaken UConn like nobody's business. And I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think it's in, it was it's student created, student ran, and the university doesn't try it. I mean, what can they do? It's on a, a third party social media platform. Um, but I think it's a really beautiful way where students really leaned into the power that they have to go and to share their kind of grievances, knowing that the university is taking taking note of it. Um, and they have. So I, I think there's certainly absolutely power in that. And yes, I have seen a, a 180. When I was doing this work before Black and the Ivory popped off, and I mean literally within a month, meeting with the president before and meeting with the president after. Let me tell you, there was a difference. So um, sometimes you do have to kind of I don't want to say poke the bear because that's not what we're doing. We're not talking about provoking, but it is about being a bit more forthright and more public um, with uh, with your experiences. And and you're right, it is a brand and um, they, they want to protect that brand. Yeah, and I would just add that it is important to think about the before and the after there because it's one thing to be able to get the bear's attention, but now you're in the bear cave. And so what do you do? And I think there's certain words that you want to use. You want to be very strategic when you talk to power. Right. So, for example, like one phrase I always use, I say, what are concrete and specific things that we're going to do to sort of address this issue? And the reason why concrete and specific is important is because you don't want the powers that be to issue some very generic statement that say, um, we feel super bad about this. Like, clearly, they would gussy it up. But like, there's so many statements that come out. They just say, this is a shame and really something should be done like babushka dolls of passive voice. So you wanna say, okay, what are the concrete specific things that we're gonna do here? And then you also wanna say, what are the evaluation metrics? 
So given that you've committed to these concrete specific things, how will we know? And to Marina's point, say we, you know, it don't, don't go in there, you know, it's like a knife fight, but say, how are we gonna figure out whether these concrete specific things worked or not? Because you wanna hold people accountable. And uh, I think it's really important, for example, like when you go into meetings, you know, I, this is kind of like a Jedi mind trick, but you know, go in there with a sheet of paper so people can see how much or how little you've written down as a result of what other people have said to you, you know, because if you come into the meeting and you ask a question like, what are the concrete specific things we're gonna do? You take the cap off your pen, get your best smile. Yeah, I'm listening. And then you don't write anything down. That's a very sort of subtle, but like not so subtle message that we haven't really made progress here. We're just sort of exchanging platitudes. And I think that, you know, that's one trap that sometimes I see students in particular fall into where they're very sort of energetic, they're very enthusiastic, but the thing is, you know, the people in power, they're there for a reason. They know all these techniques. And one of those techniques is to run the clock out. You know, you got an hour long meeting, you spend 45 minutes of it in platitudes, the assistant knocks on the door, 15 more minutes. You look at your agenda, you've discussed nothing, right? So whenever you talk to power, you need to be very clear about trying to set the agenda and be polite, but have specific goals that you want for you in terms of what you say specific ask you want to make of them and always ask about that evaluation metric thing. Because if you don't have evaluation, then it's very easy for the powers that be to sort of semi-commit to something, but then nothing really gets done. That's so good. And in fact, sometimes we, or not sometimes, uh, the group I work with, we email them the agenda beforehand, right? Um, so that they, we all know um, what it is that we plan to, to, to speak about. And if I can add just one more thing in terms of strategy and doing this work and the risk is, and you can take this as you will, but I started, my voice started to become a little bit louder and I started to become a little bit more unabashed in, in what I said when my record got stronger. Take it as you will. And I'm not saying that this is, you know, uh, uh, necessarily even advice, but I, when I knew like, Tenure's never given um, by any stretch, but when I knew like, you know, I've, I've hit the publication number to where, I've, you know what I mean? Where like, you've got a lawsuit at this point. Um, I, I felt a little bit more comfortable when I knew that like, you know, my teaching is good, my services is, a, you know, I, I blow other people out the water in terms of what I'm doing at all levels, university, department, professional, uh, my research is on point in all aspects and top tier journals. Then I know that, you know, in terms of the repercussions that they might come at, you know, that they might, they might try, um, they're going to have to come up, be a little bit more strategic if they even go and try to, um, try to, uh, uh, get, if there's any backlash for me speaking out. So I would just consider that as well. I have seen, for example, graduate students where they, 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 they could probably, there's, they could probably spend a little bit more time in terms of research and teaching. They don't necessarily have an established record, um, but they were um, uh, very much provoking the bear. Um, and it didn't turn out well for them um, because of the backlash and they just didn't have a record to stand on. So take it as you will. Um, but I know that that is a strategy that has very much worked for me. Um, what do you think about the role of tenure in supporting systemic racism in the academy? And if you feel tenure plays a role, what do you think about getting rid of the tenure process? James, you want to go? Because I'm not up for tenure. I'm not even, I'm not going for it. <laughs> you have it. So you want to talk about it? 
rumors are true. Yes, I do. So, so I recently got tenure um, uh, last year. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I think that, you know, tenure is kind of a double-edged sword. And, and this gets back to some of our earlier conversations about what is the additional burden or the additional load that you bear as a person of color and as a black person in particular, when you have to juggle all of that, you know, with publisher parish and you have to you teach and do all those kinds of things. I think that, um, you know, so, so tenure is good in a sense that, you know, if you get tenure, then that does give you the freedom to be more outspoken about certain things, getting to some of Chardet's points as well. You know, so once you sort of have that credential, and just to be frank, it's a credential, right? We live in a credentialed society. And one reason why it's hard for grad students to speak up about these things is because you don't have that credential, which says PhD, I'm a doctor. You're getting there, but you're not there yet. You know, and so what you often find is that, you know, if you lack those credentials, that that sort of puts you in a greater position of, of danger, if you will, to speak out about these things. You know, I think that the, and this is unfortunate, but I think this is a reality of, of, of the current academic market is that, as I was mentioning before, even in engineering, it's a social science. You know, you got to go to conferences, you got to talk to people, you got to do some of that networking. And in fact, you have to do a little bit extra networking because, you know, when I was talking about people thinking about who to invite to a colloquium and, you know, conveniently, uh, you know, uh, uh, black people don't get mentioned or women don't get mentioned. You know, it's not in many cases because of sort of like, quote unquote, big O overt racism. It's just these systemic problems that are there. And so when you think about tenure, you know, how does that work? At most schools, when you go up for tenure, you got to get a ton of letters, right? You get other professors in your field have to write these letters that basically say this person deserves tenure. This is like some medieval stuff, man. This is like trying to get into like a spice guild back in like, you know, 15th century Italy or something like this, right? And so, you know, as an engineer, you think, okay, what's my work back plan then? So, you know, I need to eventually get, you know, some number of letters, let's say 10 letters, 15, 15 letters. How do I go about getting those, those letters? You know, how do I act intentionally? How do I send preprints to other professors? Things like that. How do I go to other schools and give presentations? Things like this. So I think that in that sense, there, you know, getting tenure can be more difficult when you're a person of color. I think if you get it, uh, it's sort of incumbent upon you to try to use that position of, to be frank, power to advocate for some of these issues. Now, perhaps the, the other part of the question is what does it mean when you've got these, you know, older people, shall we say, who are tenured, who are maybe not as forward looking as other people that we might you know, be able to think about. And that's hard, you know, that's hard. And, and those, th those, those folks, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, I like to think about people as sort of like, uh, evil and wicked and can't be reasoned with. And I have a set of strategies for dealing with them. And then it's sort of like uh, incompetent or ignorant, right? And my advisor told me something that was really, um, really changed my life. I was angry about something that someone had, had, had done to me. And he said, never, uh, never ascribe to malice what can be explained by incompetence. And so this is not to say that there are not actively evil people out there. But I think if you have that attitude, that actually makes it easier to deal with, for example, some of these older tenure professors who seem like they're acting just willy-nilly, just they're like Sauron from Lord of the Rings, but really they're from a different era perhaps. Or maybe they have blind spots that you can help them with. And, that, and I realize that when I say that, that's putting a disproportionate burden on the people who are disenfranchised to have to teach people about things. And that's a real burden. So I want to be clear about that, just in the way that Marina talked about, you know, you can put yourself in peril by speaking up. 
it is exhausting to have to explain some of these things to well-intentioned but confused people. But one thing that I've seen at least personally in my career, and when I look at the careers of my friends and other folks is that, um, you know, black scholars who've been able to, to sort of thread that needle and on the one hand sort of speak with some of that fire and, and point out things that are problematic in the in ivory tower, but also build coalitions, also create a sense of community, not just amongst other black scholars, but amongst you know white scholars, amongst not just women, but men as well. Those people tend to be the most effective. And so, you know, I would keep all that in mind when thinking about how it is that you want to sort of uh, structure your career. What do you do? What don't you do? Uh, this person asks, I'm curious how the panelists had been able to quantify what I call the invisible tax of being a black faculty member and or a doctoral student. I started documenting literally every student mentoring uh, conversation, each token committee assignment, any offensive remark from a non-BIPOC colleague, slight from leadership, almost to the point of therapy. How do you recommend we start going beyond simply holding receipts in the review process? So that is a really interesting question, the way that it was framed. Um, when I when you first started reading it, Christina, you know, the idea of receipts, I always think about insurance policies, right? And and I think you expect the words because you want to be ready. You're, you're surprised when the amazing things happen, but you want to think about all the potential outcomes, right? Um, and in my own PhD experience, I it got to the point where I also had to keep receipts, right? And had to write minutes after every single advisement meeting so that it was on the record what was understood to James's point about bringing a paper and writing down concrete and specific expectations. Um, but I think there is, uh, my question would be, what is the um, intention behind the receipts, right? Um, what is what is the what 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 does the quantification what end does the quantification serve right um, so if you're trying to have the receipts um, because your department has a history or a track record of treating students and faculty of color um, in less than above the board way and you want to have kind of a record of that if things ever go left that's one thing right. Um, if you are trying, if you're keeping receipts as a processing mechanism for yourself, you know, but the goal at the end of it is kind of a healthy um, outlook on the situation, that's another thing. For me, I think, you know, not all um, asks on your, on your time are, are, are inherently negative, right? Like there are some people I want to mentor, right? They're, they're, there, there's a lot that I get out of that uh, relationship or that participation on a, on a task force or being consulted um, for things, right? So I hope that we are not giving the impression that that work writ large um, should be shied away from, right? But I think if, if you're looking for balance, sometimes writing it out can be helpful. Right. Uh, that was something that a mentor told me, write down all the obligations you have and put it on a whiteboard where you have to see it so that when somebody comes up to you and asks you to do the next thing, you can remember, because this is where I fail. I forget all the other things I've committed to. Right. So then I commit to the next thing, not knowing that something is already in its place. Right. 
So if that's the intention of the receipt, um, it can be helpful. But I think just, I, I mean, I'm curious, I wish this, this could be a back and forth, um, what the intention of your detailed receipts are um, and, and understanding if that intention is, is serving you um, versus kind of focusing your mind on something that, um, you know, might, might be keeping you in, in, in a not so helpful place, if that makes sense. The next question is, how do we combat seeing blackness as a monolith if we are often encouraged to code switch in white higher education places? The code switching burdens, you can tell by the pregnant pause from everyone. We're like, oh man, how do we address this one? So, so the code switching burden is real. Uh, I think that there, there's sort of like a practical reality of of, of sort of like, how do you, once again, speak to power, or even people who are your peers or people who are sort of quote unquote, you know, junior to you. I think it is important for everyone, not just white people, for black people too, anyone, men, women, to be able to understand who their audience is, right? And understand how to phrase things in a way that will help your message resonate with that other person, right? I mean, like Barack Obama was a hilarious example of this, right? Because, you know, you can go on Twitter and type in, you know, uh, Barack Obama speaking like he's black and get a whole set of funny videos. And you can get in, you know, Barack Obama speaking like he's white, get a whole different set of funny videos. So, you know, it's something that I think a lot of scholars of, uh, of color uh, struggle with because they want to always be authentic, you know, but in some cases, like be speaking in your authentic voice uh, may not be received well by the audience. And I think one of the most important things to uh, understand, like in public speaking, whenever you're in a situation where you're trying to um, be perceived as a person with authority, and that is one of the biggest challenges for scholars of color, to be perceived as someone with authority, because you will not automatically be given that authority. And particularly in science, you know, technical authority, that's a phrase you hear thrown around a lot. You know, this person's an authority on X, they're an authority on Y. And as a person of color, and particularly as a black person, you will oftentimes not be afforded that automatic authority that might be conferred to a white person who has your same level of background, your same publication record. And so I think an unfortunate, an unfortunate sort of consequence of that is that you will sometimes have to tweak your, your message a bit or change the way that um, you talk. And this is sort of just a, as a practical thing, you know? And so I think about this as an engineer, right? So I like telling jokes, you know, I like being funny, but I also um, know that there are certain career goals I have that are furthered by me first being understood as a technical authority, and then only second being understood as someone you'd want to hang out with after the talk or things like that. So I think this is a really important example of how you have to know your audience. This does not mean you necessarily have to self-censor. That's a different thing. You know, I think that hopefully wherever you are in life, whether you're a you know, workplace environment or some, a personal environment, you should feel comfortable saying the things that are on your mind. But I think from the practical perspective, it is important to try to understand the perspective of the person that you're talking to. And in academia, this is particularly the case because you will oftentimes encounter well-intentioned people who don't get it. And that's like a big chunk of the resistance that at least I've, I've seen personally, uh, my friends who are scholars of color encounter. It's not that the person doesn't want to help, it's that they don't fully understand the scope of the problem or they don't fully understand why the current mechanisms aren't good enough. And so once again, it is a burden to be an educator. It is difficult to have to feel like you need to justify things 
that you believe are innately true and that you have experienced as personally true. But I mean, I think that is something that I see successful uh, black scholars do, that there is sort of like this, in a sense, this extra educational effort they do to try to make people, uh, to, to allow people to meet them halfway, if you will, to sort of build that rhetorical bridge where both of the people can meet and then they can say, okay, this is actually a real problem that I understand. So that's, this is this is such an interesting question and it's it's I agree with you James and at the same time I, I like how you framed it in terms of a practical question and this idea of you know I haven't ever thought about code switching in relation to um, tailoring for your audience right because that is very well understood um, particularly in any kind of scholastic um, technical presentations, things like that, right? Like you want to tailor your slides to the le level of your audience, whether it's a general audience, you would present it one way, or if it's a very technical audience who knows your narrow field, you would present it a different way. It's interesting. It's almost, it's almost like um, how you speak in different settings. So if you're in a technical presentation, that's fine. But I think we have to also leave space for acknowledging that in more general engagements, um, when I'm in the at the water cooler or I'm in the break room or something, you you know we should not um, give the system a pass in in making us feel like we must speak in a certain way or use certain vocabulary, right? Like when you when you are not with your engineer hat on and giving a technical talk, you know, and you are just Marina or Sade or James you should be able to speak how you speak, right? And, and part of that power comes from, don't, my dad says this to me all the time, don't focus on the form, focus on the substance, right? What am I saying? And is what I'm saying correct? Then who cares about how I'm saying it in this informal interaction, right? Now, if I'm in a technical talk, that's a different environment, right? But I don't want um, our audience to leave um, without the acknowledgement that you should be able to bring your vernacular, your inflections, right? Women get said to get talk, told this all the time. Make sure you bring your inflection down. Think about your inflection. Like the amount of thought behind the scenes that has to go into how I'm speaking, how, how you know, how am I going to have any energy left to focus on the damn nuclear engineering, you know? So like we have to leave space um, for, for that truth as well. Yes, there is tailoring to your audience. And I totally agree with that. And I love that framing. And in less formal interactions, you should feel empowered and you should push against the system to not focus on the form, but focus on the substance of what you're saying. I'm glad you said that, um, uh, Marina. You think you brought up a, a good point. And as I was listening to the question, and, and uh, something I, I kind of gleaned from it was kind of a burden that somehow we uh, as, as black academics uh, carry in, in thinking that our behavior is somehow going to change how let's say white our our white colleagues view us. So thinking we don't right that I heard um, how uh, code switching or not and perhaps how that is going to impact our, our white colleagues seeing us as a monolith. But unfortunately, we could code switch, we could not code switch, we could use inflections, we could show up in our Ankara, our, our Kente cloth, we could, I could show up with a press and curl or, you know, my natural kinky curl. The, 
their cognitive processing is their cognitive processing, right? And it's going to vary from white person to white person and that's their own particular journey and where they are at in life. And honestly, that really doesn't have much to do with our own behavior, right? Because, because anti-Black racism is systemic. It's not us, baby. It's them. Right. And so I think and what I'm, you know, even hearing from uh, uh, Marina and from James is that I think we have to really keep that in mind and uh, uh, um, give ourselves some grace. Right. And allowing us to just be able to show up in spaces in ways that we need to show up in ways that we deem correct and necessary. Right. And authentic to who we are, um, because, yeah, I, there's not much that we can really say or try to go into change. If a white person is going to see us as a, a, a monolithic kind of black culture, then they're really not going to change from that unless they go, again, they have their own process and journey to where they are starting to recognize that those are beliefs that they hold and they're trying to move from that. But it's not likely going to change from you code switching or not. So this is our last question. Um, thank everybody uh, for being here. The questions have been wonderful and um, I'm sorry that we can't get to all of them. Um, uh, so I'm actually gonna kind of combine a few questions here. We've had a number of questions along the lines of the structure of academia and how that influences um, systemic racism. Uh, given systemic racism in academia, how might the structure of a PhD degree be changed to be more equitable? I'm gonna kind of broaden that out and say the structure of academia in, in general. So I'll, I'll take a first stab and then Shande and James, you guys definitely um, correct me. But <laughs> so I think one of the things um, that works against equity in the uh, PhD process specifically um, is all of the opaqueness, right? And I understand that um, there's a, there is a purpose, at least in theory, that the opaqueness serves. Um, but when you're in the system, it feels more like the opaqueness is to serve as kind of a protection for the department more than it is in service of anything to do with the student, right? So, so this idea um, that, you know, the, the essence of the PhD is creating new knowledge, right? And the fact that just similar with the tenure track, you don't know where that bar is. You know it's up there, but they're not going to tell you exactly what you have to do in order to get um, that next promotion, whether it's the PhD itself or the actual tenure appointment, right? But, but in practice, um, because it isn't very clear about how this process works, you see particularly students of color and particularly black students falling through the cracks, right? For things that um, don't have to be justified because the process is so opaque, right? So that's what I meant by um, students who applied for a PhD, but for whatever reason are leaving with a master's, right? You talk about the qualifying exam process, right? We have to look at that system. How does that system affect the attrition rate? And then who in that attrition rate is actually leaving? Because I, I, my, my hypothesis would be that that is also not equitable. Everybody is not leaving at the same rate, right? And you have to look at that over time. So I think, you know, we need to, as an institution or as a field, um, we need to try where, where possible to, to shed some light 
um, and try to put some more formal structure um, on these points of evaluation. Yes, you may not put a five point bullet list about exactly what it's gonna take to get a PhD, but you need to give people something to hold on to so that when there is that problem, which there often is for students of color, they have a ground to stand on, right? They have a way to challenge the department. And it's not just, oh, we got in the room and we decided you're off the island, which is like what it feels like. And it, and, and when you look at who is getting thrown off the island, more often than not, you know, it disproportionately affects students of color and, and particularly American born students of color, because that is something that we don't acknowledge, right? When not only do we define diversity with respect to gender, but we often point to our international um, students as the, the beacon of our diversity, right? Ignoring the historical context of racism in America, right? And why no American students are able to get into our, our, our organizations and our institutions. So we have to look at those, those systems. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and, and related to that, I think about the hidden curriculum um, uh, in academia and in terms of ways to make it a bit more equitable uh, is to acknowledge that there's a hidden curriculum and to find ways even at a departmental program, uh, in terms of the programs in colleges to find ways to uh, communicate, to teach that curriculum uh, to your, your BIPOC students. For example, I think about writing. In the English language is white. It's white American language, right? It, it, it's, it's created by white folks. Thinking about black folks, for example, we are a multilingual people. Uh, uh, the English language is not, um, uh, uh, reading and writing in English is not, uh, does not come easy or it's not easier, how should I say this, relative to our our white counterparts, we very much struggle as a black people with our with that language, reading and writing, because we're a multilingual individual people. And so because of that, academia really needs to recognize that uh, academic writing um, is a technical. Um, so therefore, it needs to be uh, taught about just the basics, the mechanics of academic writing, um, but then also that there are individuals, for example, who have gone through the pre-K through 12 uh, educational system who have not been taught, right, the, the basics of, of writing. Um, and so there are assumptions that we have about how PhD students are supposed to show up in the program and how they're supposed to perform. And again, this kind of curriculum that people are assuming that they know or were taught and they, and they may not have been taught. Even thinking about the basics of research, right? Even though individuals may have some research experience coming from, uh, coming from let's say their undergraduate or master's institution, they may not have been sat down and taught kind of the ABCs or the ways, right? Of, uh, of, of research and what it looks like. Again, there can be a disadvantage uh, at play for some of our BIPOC students uh, as they're moving through the program. So I think we have to we have to recognize that we're all not starting out uh, at, at, at the same level, right? And that there is kind of a hidden network where social capital and information is being transferred among particular groups of people um, in ways that is different from, again, our BIPOC students and to find a way to make sure that they get that information as well. Yeah, I think that I think that what both of you just said was really about the importance of mentorship too. 
because you know when we talk about the hidden curriculum or the this this sort of implicit set of skills that people are assumed to have I mean, it's not just about the hidden curriculum. It's also about the fact that, you know, oftentimes the rules are used to punish the people that the people in power want to punish. But these rules are oftentimes not, you know, set in stone. You know, take quals exams, for example. Yeah, I know, you know, many schools, you know, if the department likes you, you can fail your quals twice, eh, you know, we'll give you another shot. If the school doesn't like you, you fail half the time. Ah, I don't like your progress, man. You know, you're a little bit weak there. And so we all know examples of this. And so, that's one place where mentorship is so important because a mentor who knows how the institution works can set your expectations correctly for like, this is really a rule that you have to follow. Here's how you really get evaluated. You know, this is really what, for example, the faculty market looks like. This is why, this is what they're looking for in terms of a resume. So I think a lot of these, these, these issues, a lot of them are related to this issue of mentorship. And so I think one of the big things that um, universities could do to improve the outcomes for uh, black PhD students and, and black faculty as well is make sure there are strong mentoring networks in place to explain some of this hidden knowledge that is so critical for actually succeeding. You know, and like talking about, you know, the extra burdens that, you know, scholars of color have, you know, which committee memberships can you say no to? There are actually many of them you can say no to and there are no bad effects on you. There are some you should not do that for. Which ones? Ah, you know, as part of this hidden knowledge. So I think the mentorship aspect is really key to making sure that we have uh, Black scholars succeeding in academia. Um, thank you all so much for being here. If you would like to see more events like this, sign up for our mailing list, comforum.mit.edu. There's a link in the chat. Uh, thank you to Radius at MIT and the MIT Governance Lab for supporting events like this. Um, and this was a, a really delightful thing. So thank all of our panelists for carving out time today to do this. Um, thank you so much and have a nice night, everyone. <laughs>